passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Uh, good, to be, good to be here this morning with each and every one of you. Um, hope you had a blessed Christmas. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Psalm 119 this morning. Uh, Psalm 119. So if you have a Bible, I want uh, go ahead and open it up. Um, today is our last Sunday uh, gathering for worship in the year 2020. And uh, when I say that, you probably start rejoicing because that means that 2020 is over, right? Um, now, I say that in jest. Uh, but uh, this is an important topic um, to, that I want us to touch on this morning. We are at the end of a, of a very tumultuous year, aren't we? Uh, it's been a, a challenging one. It's one that none of us could have imagined. And it has been hard. Uh, it has been divisive. And that's just referring to the circumstances that are out there. Uh, that's not saying anything about what you may have experienced uh, in this year uh, ignoring all of the, the things about the pandemic, the, the election, the societal un- unrest that we're experiencing. Uh, maybe for some of us, the year 2020 has been one of the most difficult years of our lives. It's been a challenge for us to get through, and uh, it's been filled with ups and downs, but it's a whole lot easier for us to, to focus on the downs than it is for us to look at the ups. And, and that's, I think that's part of our culture. We live in a culture a society that is filled with cynicism, it is a whole lot easier for us to see the bad and to focus on the bad and to dwell on the bad than it is on the good. Even my comment from a couple of moments ago, just, you know, we're, we're happy that 2020 is over. Uh, it, it, I say that hoping to be funny, uh, but it really betrays this hard attitude of our culture, one of a critical spirit question I have for us is, is that biblical? I'm not saying that we can't make those kind of jokes anymore, uh, but, but is this sort of, of attitude that we see permeating our culture, is it a biblical one? Just because it's popular doesn't mean it is biblical. And so what I want us to do is I want us to consider what the Bible has for us on how we interact with, how we look at the, the circumstances of our lives, specifically looking at affliction and hardship in our own lives. And I want us to do that from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter, the longest psalm. Uh, It's the longest chapter in the entire Bible, not just in the Psalms. Uh, 176 verses. And we're not going to look at all of those this morning. What I want us to do is just zero in on eight verses this morning, a section of this psalm that talks about how we might Look at our circumstances through the word of God. Psalm 119, very unique psalm because of how long it is. And all of it is, is focused on the word of God. But what's more, it's not just uh, all focused on the word of God. It's also an acrostic psalm, which means that every eight verses, the lines that start these verses start with a different consecutive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So what I mean by that is the first eight verses of Psalm 119 all start with the Hebrew letter Aleph, or their equivalent of the letter A. And then the next eight verses start with the Hebrew letter Beit, or, or their equivalent of the letter B. And it goes on and on and on, all the way through their 22 letters of the alphabet. So another way of looking at it, if you're just, this is just um, a, a tip, the way my mind works. 
Uh, if I look at, at a psalm and, and say, all right, on my Bible reading plan, I have to read through uh, uh, one psalm that's 176 verses long. I like to look at it instead as 22 psalms that are eight verses long. All right, so that's just one way to, to look at it. What we're going to do is, is to look at verses 65 through 72. And this is a, a stanza that all begins with the, the letter Tate. All right? And, and all of these things are focused on the Word of God, but more specifically than just the Word of God, it's talking about the intersection between the Word of God and how that might transform the way that we view our hardship, the way we might view our affliction, our suffering, the pain, the, the, the circumstances that are outside of our control that we struggle with. How do, how do we see that, that God might use our affliction our hard times for good in our lives? What can we learn from these things? These are the kinds of questions that the psalmist himself is, is wrestling with as he is writing this psalm. Structure of these eight verses is really straightforward. It starts with a summary, and then after that, it gives us two examples of how God might use affliction in your life, how God might teach you through the hardship and the unfortunate circumstances that you experience in your life. And so that's the exact same path that we're going to follow this morning. We're going to look at this summary, and then we're going to look at the two ways that God can use hardship in your life. And as we unpack these verses, these eight verses, my hope is that deep within us, we will will latch on to, to this truth that we see from these verses. And it's simply this, a heart that dwells on the word of God sees the goodness of God in every circumstance and every season. Let me say that again. A heart that dwells on the word of God will be able to see the goodness of God in every circumstance and in every season. So when you face hardship and when you face affliction, there's, there's really two ways for you to approach that and to to look at the hard times in your life. I think it's important for us to recognize, remember, realize that our faith will never be static. We will never stay at the same place. When we are faced with, with hardship, we will either draw nearer to God, we will run toward him, or our affliction will cause us to draw back from him, to run away from him. Our circumstances will either push us toward Jesus or create within us a resentment that, that causes us to run away from Jesus. And the psalmist is saying, hey, I've gone through hard times. I've gone through affliction. I've gone through suffering. And here's my hope. My hope is that you would see your hardship and not become resentment at God, but instead that it would be used by him as an opportunity for you to draw nearer to him. That's the psalmist's desire, that the word of God would shape you in such a way that you view your hardship, your circumstances, your affliction differently. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this text. If you have a Bible, again, please open up uh, to Psalm 119, starting in verse 65. But before we do that, I want us to just pause, pray for God, uh, God's presence to be with us this morning. Would you pray with me? God, as we approach your word, I ask that you would give us the same passion for it that we see from the psalmist in this text. 
I ask that we would not just be hearers, but doers of the word. I pray that you would increase our desire to know you through your word. Thank you for the gift of the scriptures. Help us now to have eyes that are open to what you would say. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned that that the psalmist starts with this summary. He he starts with a summary uh, of what he is about to say or or what he's talking about in these eight verses. Let's, uh, Let's pick up starting in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Notice what's not found in these verses. The psalmist doesn't say, you know what, you should just run toward God in your hardship and in your affliction because then all of the bad times in your life will end. He doesn't say that he doesn't even give us the answer to the question of why we endure these hard times and and endure these afflictions. Instead, he just says simply, this is the summary, God is good even in my circumstances. God is good even in my circumstances. This is what verse 65 is telling us. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. God is good even in my circumstances. I want us to intentionally personalize that for us this morning because I think that's important for us. That we don't want to just confess that God is good, that God is good in this abstract way, this theological statement, but, but to actually see that God is good in my circumstances. That's what the psalmist is trying to focus on here. He wants us to see that even whatever you're going through, even in that, God is good. You see, when we, we personalize this, we take this from this abstract theological truth and, and we apply it into our lives and the specific of our lives, and then we can catch a glimpse of whether or not we realize or we really actually believe this. Do I actually believe that God is good in my life, in my circumstances? What is your reaction to this personalized confession? It's one thing to say God is good in every season, but to actually say God is good right now in what I am going through in my hard times. What is our our visceral gut reaction to this statement? It is far more comfortable for us to keep this at a distance and say, you know what, God is good, than it is for us to say God is good right now in my circumstances and in my hardship and in my heartache. The psalmist hits on this a couple of verses later, verse 68, the first half. He says, you are good, and you do good. It's a whole lot easier for us to say you are good, even when we're experiencing hardship, even when we're going through tough times. It's a whole lot easier for us to say you are good, God, than it is to say 
you are doing good to me right now. Notice the two halves of this first verse here, verse 65. First, the psalmist, he's, he's addressing God. And he says to the psalmist, you have dealt well with me, with your servant. I love the picture that this language evokes. It's active. It's, it's not passive here. It challenges our preconceived notions of God, because I think a lot of times we can think of God as this distant God, one who isn't actively involved in our lives, but this language tells us otherwise. And it also challenges us, because when we are faced with hardship and and affliction, I think it's far easier for us to say, well, the reason why I am going through this is because God is is uninvolved. He might be aware of what I'm experiencing, what what I'm going through right now. He might even be rooting for me and cheering me on, and yet he's not actively doing things for me. He's just waiting to see how things will end up. But that's not the picture of the God of the Bible. The picture that we see of the God of the Bible is one who is active in the lives of people. And as such, this isn't a God who is on our side but uninvolved. That's impossible. Instead, we see a picture of a God who is active in our lives. And we have to ask a question. How has God dealt with us? Has, has God dealt good with me or has God dealt wicked, w- wickedly with me? God is involved in our lives, but is it for the good or for the ill? And the psalmist is examining all of his life and he declares that it is for the good. That God, you have, dwe- you have dealt well with your servant. How does he reach this conclusion? Is it because his life is, is really easy? Uh, things are going really well at this point? No, so we're going to see in just a few moments that's not the case. He gives us the answer in the second half of his verse. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. The psalmist is able to say, that God has dealt good with him, that he has, he has been good to the psalmist because he is aware of what is written in God's word. And what's more, he concludes, based off of his knowledge of God through the word of God, that this is not a contradiction. There's not this contradiction between what life is like and what God has promised him in his word. He, he examines his life and he examines the scriptures and he concludes that you have, you have dealt well with me just as you have said you would in your word. And that's an astounding claim. That's an astounding claim to hear. The psalmist reveals that the key to confessing the goodness of God, no matter what we experience, isn't downplaying our circumstances, ignoring them, minimizing them in our, in our lives, but instead to dwell on the word of God And to hold to it tightly so that we can see our circumstances in light of what it says about who God is. Of course, there's a question. It's turned on us. At the beginning of this section, can I say you have dealt well with me? Can you say God is good even in my circumstances, even in this moment, right now. The psalmist reminds us a heart that dwells 
in the word of God, sees the goodness of God. In any circumstance, in every circumstance, in every season. And there is no disconnect between what the scriptures say about who God is and the promises of God as revealed in those scriptures in my life right now. Now, as we continue in this stanza, we see a lesson of affliction. We see this, God uses affliction to align our lives with his word. God uses affliction to align our lives with his word. Consider verses 66 through 68. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. What's the psalmist's desire here? It's for wisdom, right? That's the heart of his request here in verse 66. It's that God would teach me good judgments and knowledge. That, that he, he's, not, he's not praying for uh, an understanding of why. He's just saying, hey, God, give me wisdom so that way I can live in the midst of this circumstance right now. As he pours over the word of God, he concludes that what he needs more than anything else is wisdom, is good judgment, and knowledge. Wisdom is more important than having our burning questions answered. It's more important than the alleviation of our circumstances. It is instead the way that we live in the midst of the circumstances that we wait for God to be at work on our behalf. It reminds me of, of what James says at the beginning of his epistle. James writes this, talking about suffering and wisdom. Notice these two things are connected. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And normally we actually stop right there when we're reading in James. But the very next verse says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Oftentimes we don't make this connection between the growth in wisdom and suffering and an affliction, and yet the scriptures oftentimes will do that. How is it that the psalmist says that he gains perspective in his life? He gives us that answer in the second half of verse 66. For I believe in your commandments. In other words, he's saying that the more I turn my attention to your word, the more I see the priorities of God and of your heart, And it's in this commitment to the scriptures that allows him to have the perspective, to look at his hardship, and to conclude, God is using this to align my life to his word. Consider verse 67 again. He says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. By dwelling in the word of God, the psalmist realizes that God uses affliction to increasingly align our lives with his word and with his will. And looking back, the psalmist can see how he has grown in obedience to God because of his affliction. 
that obedience to God was at one point not his number one priority, that other concerns consumed him, but after affliction, they fell into their proper place. And affliction leads to this increase in the psalmist's obedience. Now, we have to be careful when we say that. Because I think when we, we see this, it would be so easy for us to just conclude that God is, is borderline vindictive. That, that all God really cares about is just tossing us into the fire so that way he can burn away the impurities of our life and we can be more and more obedient. That this might be some form of loving discipline, but it's only because God loves discipline. But that's not the picture of the psalmist. The psalmist isn't necessarily saying that our affliction is necessarily the result of us going astray as a part of the problem of affliction is solving the mystery of what we were doing wrong so that way we can fix it and then God and I can get back onto good terms and my suffering can be over. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. There's not always a correlation between our suffering and disobedience. That's not doing everything that we can in the path of obedience. Sometimes we just suffer. Even though we've done nothing wrong and our suffering isn't a form of discipline from God and yet God can still use that affliction to increase our desire to follow him. What I find fascinating about the psalmist's words here is he's meditating upon his affliction and upon the word of God. He says this in verse 67, immediately after he has said that God has dealt well with his servant in verse 65. Here the psalmist is saying that part of the goodness of God is actually his affliction. It's his hardship that he is suffering. And he may not understand, but he trusts in the God who loves him. And on this side of the cross, we can say that not only this God who loves us, but also this God who gave himself up for us. And to conclude that nothing but good can come from our loving God. That's one of the connections that we see here. But I think an even more fascinating one is this connection between the psalmist's request for wisdom. That's what he's praying for in verse 66 in this verse here, verse 67. He, he's saying that God has taught him wisdom through his affliction. Oftentimes with our kids, we will define wisdom as knowing the right thing to do at the right time. We want our kids to be wise, and that's what we see here, that the psalmist is learning the right thing to do at the right time, that he is increasing in his obedience as opposed to going astray by keeping the word of God. I think that's one of the reasons why Scripture connects affliction and Wisdom, because God grants us wisdom. He grows within us wisdom through our hardship. We increasingly see the goodness of God towards us when we align our lives with the, uh, with the word of God. And this is the psalmist's cry in verse 68. He, he again asks that God would teach him his statutes, a way of referring to God's commandments, and, and not just that, that God has given us commandments, but that they are eternal 
that this is the never-changing word of God. More than anything else in his life, the psalmist wants to be obedient to God. And that's why he is able to confess, you are good and you do good. It's because a heart that dwells in the word of God sees the goodness of God in every circumstance and in every season. Psalmist gives us one final lesson that he has learned from affliction. God uses affliction to prune our desires. To prune our desires. Consider verses 69 through 72. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Here the psalmist is contrasting his state of mind with those who ridicule him. Now, we don't know the details of his life. We don't know the details of his circumstances. We don't really need to know. In fact, I think it's a good thing that we don't know because then we can see this through the lens of our own hardships and our own circumstances. Just note the contrast here. While on the one hand, the insolent lie, the psalmist keeps the word of God with his whole heart. Verse 69. We see another contrast in in verse 70. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, and yet I delight in your law. It's a very visceral image, but what exactly does it mean? I think the psalmist is is portraying, there's really just two ways of looking at the the world. There's two ways of looking at the word of God, really. And on the one hand, we have the insolent, those who are causing this affliction for him. And then there is his approach as well. Remember what I said, when we face affliction, there are two paths before us. We will either be drawn closer to God or we will run away from him in resentment. And we see the result of those two things right here. A contrast between these two types of people. Those who have no interest in the things of God, either because they once did and they've grown resentful toward him, or because they've never really had an interest in who he is. That's on one side. And then we have those who draw near to him. On the one hand, we have those who, heart, who have hearts that are unfeeling like fat. Their hearts don't feel. They have been seared to the way of God. They're, they don't care about the way of God. They've closed their minds. They've turned off their minds from anything that has to do with him. It's a heart that is useless. It's a heart that has no value. It can't feel anything about who God is and what God is doing and might be trying to communicate with us. It's cut off from sensitivity toward the way of God. On the other hand, we have a heart that delights in God's word. This is a common image in the Psalms, specifically in Psalm 119, this idea of delighting in the word of God. But I'll be honest, it's one that's really common. And because it's so common, For me, it can lose some of its power, some of its force, some of of the significance of what the psalmist is saying here. What does it mean to delight in something? What does it mean to delight in something? When I think of of delight, it's the things that get me out of bed in the morning. The things I'm excited for when I get out of bed. The things that I look forward to in my life. Delight refers to the things that have captured my heart. 
That when I have a few moments to just let my mind wander, that's where my mind runs to. Those are my delights. For the psalmist, he says that his delight is in the word of God. But the psalmist doesn't say, I've been this way for as long as I can remember. No, he says instead in verse 71 that it is affliction. It is hardship that is the reason why he runs to the word of God, that he now delights in the word of God. Consider what he says just a few verses later in verse 75. 119 verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. The psalmist rejoices in his affliction and specifically recognizes that this affliction is from the hands of God himself. Because it leads to a heart that increasingly delights in the word of God. It increasingly teaches him the word of God and increasingly allows him to see the word of God and how it describes God as good. And that his word is good too. That God is using his affliction to prune his desires. His love for other things. His love for the things of the world. And they begin to fade because of this increasing love for God and for his word. That's what we see in verse 72. His conclusion as he has come to the end of this. He says this. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. He would rather have the word of God than wealth beyond his wildest dreams. And he credits his affliction for being able to reach that conclusion. He says that my hardship, my suffering has been teaching me. It has been revealing areas of my life to me where I have gone astray, where I've placed things of greater importance than God himself. And that through this hardship that he is beginning to draw me back to him. And he's aligning my desires to more fully reflect the right value and the right worth of God and of his word. A heart that dwells in the word of God sees the goodness of God in any and every circumstance, in any and every season. And so as we come to a close, I just want us all to to ask ourselves, what about me? What about me? When I look at my circumstances, when I look at my hardship, am I able to confess along with the psalmist that you have dealt well with your servant? You have dealt well with your servant. You see, the heart of this passage is not meant to minimize our very real affliction, our very real suffering. It isn't meant to trivialize those things either. It isn't meant to to say, well, you know what, you you just need to get over these things. This is is the danger of reading texts like this, to to hear God's word incorrectly and to just interpret it as saying, just deal with it. Just, Just get over it because if you really loved me, if you really loved my word, you wouldn't struggle with what you are going through. That's not at all what this text is saying. Let's, let's be honest. The psalmist, as he is writing this, seems to be writing this from the perspective of time. 
He's not writing this from the midst of his suffering, the midst of his hardship. Verse 71, he says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. He's not saying it is good for me right now as I am being afflicted. He's suggesting that he has come through on the other side, or at the very least, he's come to grips with it, and it's not as bad as it once was. And he sees things through the gift of God's word, but also through the gift of time. And for us, instead of concluding that God's word says, ignore your, your problems, bury your head in the sand, bury, bury your head in the Bible, honestly. That's not what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is imploring us to learn the lessons of affliction. The key to enduring hardship isn't to, to grin and bear it. It isn't to get resentful toward God. It is to seek him in his word. Not because he guarantees that he will give us answers, while doing that, but because in his word we will find him. Several verses later in Psalm 119, verse 92, it says this, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your law, if your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It's the lifeline. It's the anchor. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering. And what we see is that a heart that dwells in the word of God sees the goodness of of God. Even in your circumstances. The antidote to our culture is to dwell in the word of God. It's to drink in the word of God. If we are breathing in the air of our culture for hours and hours and hours each day, the only way for us to be able to counteract the cynicism of our culture is to spend time delighting in the Word of God. What if we were a people who resolved not to be shaped by the cynicism of our culture, but instead were shaped by the Word of God? What if we were people who are able to look at our circumstances, our hardship, no matter what we are going through, and and was able to say, God, you have dealt well with me. You have dealt well with your servant. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to encounter you through your word. To see you for who you really are. That you would increase our faith. God, I ask that you would help us to see your word as a lifeline in the midst of affliction, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering. Help us, God, to be a people who delight in the word of God. Who don't turn our backs on it and don't turn our backs on you, but instead run to you. Help us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. 
Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.